It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It is finally spring, finally warm again, and Medicaid expansion has finally passed. We just left the General Assembly, and last hour, last two hours, this bill passes the House. It is now going over to the governor for his signature. I assume there will be a signature. We saw a very emotional Donnie Lambeth present the bill yesterday and today, culmination of a lot of work that he has been putting in since the ACA passed, some 10 years ago. Today, it came down to a very bipartisan vote in favor of it. On the House side, the second reading had 21 people voting against it, and the third reading had 24 folks voting against it. But still, that's a pretty high majority of votes. For our Listeners who are not involved on a day-to-day basis in the NC poll world, this is a bill that required a two-day vote. So yesterday was the first vote, second reading. Today was the second vote, third reading. And the reason we have that is when the bill is read in, that's when it gets its first reading. So that is something that people often get confused about. Yeah, yeah. If your bill passes first reading, congratulations, but it doesn't mean anything. It just means your bill was read in and assigned to a committee. So it passed second reading yesterday, third reading today. By the way, we are recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon. Not much debate today. They did have some debate yesterday, but what was noted today, Sky, was at the conclusion of the vote... The Democratic side of the House chamber gave a standing ovation, partly for Representative Donnie Lambeth, partly that this bill finally got over the finish line, again, off to the governor's desk. Now, the speaker, it is against decorum for there to be applause. You are not allowed to spike the football on the House floor, and he slowly gaveled them down and said, members, we don't applaud after a bill passes, and they politely uh, stopped applauding. But uh, yeah, it was just a, it was a great day for proponents of this bill, all of the lobbyists that have been working on this for the last 10 years. It was a historic vote, I think, in many ways. With the governor's signature, that will make us the 40th state in the nation to pass Medicaid expansion. Sports wagering. Mm. You and I went to its first committee hearing on Tuesday, the sports gambling bill presented by Representative Jason Sane. It was in commerce, and there were quite a few amendments proposed, none that passed, and the same happened the next day in House Judiciary 1. The amendments in commerce were led mainly by Democrats, Representative John Autry, who we've had on the podcast. He had concerns about gambling, and he used the word sully a lot. He felt we were sullying sports, especially at the collegiate level. The roll call vote was 18 to 8, rejecting the amendments. The bill ultimately passed House Commerce 17 to 10, with three floaters voting. 
Yeah, so the floaters are Representative John Bell. He's the majority leader, House Rules Chairman Destin Hall, and Representative Brendan Jones. There's also Representative Sarah Stevens. She's the Speaker Pro Tem. They can go into any committee and vote. Uh, Representative Stevens was not in the committee. But what was interesting with the amendments and with this bill in general is that you have some odd bedfellows in opposing the bill. So your most conservative members in the House joining forces with your most liberal members in the House to oppose the bill. And by the way, similar phenomenon back when the lottery was being passed It was the same kind of odd coalition, not enough to gut the bill, which was attempted with those amendments, not enough to defeat the bill, but certainly made for good theater. And then you had Democrats joining up with Republicans to ensure the passage. In fact, Representative Zach Hawkins from Durham, he was partnering with the primary, primary sponsor, Representative Jason Sane. Fun to watch, fun committee. Now, interesting questions about the application of sports wagering, because a lot of the sports wagering, if not all of the sports wagering, is going to be done online. And for anyone who's played fantasy football or been on FanDuel, you know how it works. But if you're completely unfamiliar with it or older, it's possible that you do not understand. And um, that was very clear. Mm -hmm. Like, will there be a ticket window (laughs) for me to make a bet? Someone had, I guess, thought maybe there was a way to get around losing money. Could you make a bet on a game? The game already starts, you're losing. So you make another bet on the other side and you can get your money back and... You know, there were about 100 lobbyists working on this bill. Many were in that committee. Mm -hmm. I think these sports wagering apps on our phone are knowing how to make money. (laughs) (laughs) As one last stop, as all bills do before they go to the floor, which is the rules committee, and then it will be on the floor probably next week. A budget rolls out on Wednesday, we were told. Yep. The speaker told reporters that the budget would come out and they would caucus it on Tuesday, release it to the public on Wednesday, and then on Thursday have what the House is known for in their appropriations process, which is an all-day appropriations committee meeting. And generally, you see... I don't know, what, 50 amendments Mm -hmm. to the House proposed budget. And so you expect that to be like an 8.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. endeavor next week. And then they will vote on the House's version of the budget the following week. The House also took up a critical race theory bill. The bill passed the House this week, 68 to 49. No Democrats voted for it. And that bill is off to the Senate. Aside from the anti-CRT bill, there was another bill that got kind of heated on the floor on Wednesday, and that was a bill about civics. Yeah, this would require college students to take a civics course in order to get a degree at a UNC system school or a state community college. I want to read the quote from House Minority Leader Robert Reeves, just because I think it's funny. There may be people voting against this bill, 
That's not a vote against history, America, apple pie, babies, state fairs, or anything of that sort. So when the mailer comes out, I'd just like to say at least we've said that's not what this is about. (laughs) You can rest assured the mailer will say otherwise. (laughs) So basically, students leaving our public institutions of higher learning, they need to learn about the Constitution, the Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King, in hopes that we are going to have more civic-minded North Carolinians. I'm all for that, that's for sure. But the bill really came down to micromanaging the universities. And I think some legislators just don't want to get into, hey, this is what you need to be teaching. Yeah. We'll see if the Senate takes this bill up. I think it's more of a slippery slope argument. Slippery slope seems to be the big argument down at the General Assembly. Oh, man, people love a slippery slope. Speaking of, Representative Kidwell told me about Sliding Rock, North Carolina this week. I've never been there, have you? I haven't, but isn't that, I've seen It's a natural water slide. Yeah. (laughs) Does Representative Kidwell slide down slippery? Yeah. Okay, all right. Had some political news this week. The governor's race continues, and we know that the two folks that are going to be in the race are Attorney General Josh Stein and Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, but Mark Robinson is going to make it official next month. And he's going racing, not just for the governor's mansion. He is taking his announcement to the Alamance County Ace Speedway. You know, I used to live in Alamance County. I've been out there. They were front and center during the COVID debate. They wanted to keep the racetrack open there. Uh, Definitely some symbolism in where he has chosen to make this announcement. We also got news this week that a libertarian is thinking of getting in the race, and he had a celebrity endorsement on Twitter this week that got the attention of the media, could shake things up, could be a spoiler in some ways, maybe for, I would think, Lieutenant Governor Robinson, being that libertarians might siphon off some votes from the Republican Party. Mike Ross, and it appears that he is from Charlotte. He entered as a libertarian candidate, and his website is a little wild and has a picture of Charlie Sheen, That Charlie Sheen, yes. (laughs) And it says, Mike Ross is winning the race for governor this year. He's winning over the hearts and minds of voters. He's winning the policy debate. He's just winning. He's got that tiger blood. Charlie Sheen, and says that he's a resident of Wake County. (laughs) (laughs) This one's even better. Here's another why we support Mike. (laughs) Quote, I used to be four foot ten and looked like Danny DeVito. (laughs) (laughs) then i read mike's vision for north carolina now i'm six foot four and married to a cosby thanks mike ross and that is from jason momoa in gaston county (laughs) (laughs) and then there's a comment i resent that statement from jason but also i'm a really big fan of mike ross get the government off our backs you know and that's from danny devito (laughs) (laughs) where's danny devito from Mecklenburg. Okay. I don't know if Mr. Moss is going to be successful or not, but if this is his campaign communication strategy, I'm all in for it. Do you know who Jason Momoa is? Oh, yeah. He's Aquaman. He was in Game of Thrones, married to Lisa Bonet at one point. Yes, know him. 
Like, I think if we were to dramatize the General Assembly, I think Jason Momoa would play Danny Britt in the Senate. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we're working in Danny Britt again. (laughs) Senator Danny Britt, as portrayed by Jason Momoa. I hope you enjoyed your vacation from the podcast, Senator Britt. (laughs) Back to work, buckaroo. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we got to sit down with Billy Lassiter, who is a deputy secretary at the Department of Public Safety, and really hear an inspirational story about his life and how he impacts others. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Billy Lassiter, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Public Safety, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. To start us off, tell us about your job. What is your job like in a day-to-day basis? I'm the Deputy Secretary for the Department of Public Safety over juvenile justice, and so I oversee the juvenile justice system in the state of North Carolina, and that includes our facilities where kids are committed long-term, and also our juvenile detention centers where kids are um, housed in confinement while they're awaiting trial. We also oversee our juvenile court counselors. So our juvenile court counselors serve similar roles to what you would think of an adult probation officer, but they also play an important role on the front end of the system. They actually do what a magistrate would do in the adult system. So um, when a law enforcement officer arrests a juvenile, we call it filing a juvenile complaint, that juvenile will come into the juvenile court counselor's office and the juvenile court counselor will decide either to dismiss that case or to approve it to go to court. And then from that point on, they actually case manage that juvenile going through the system. And so uh, a judge will make ultimate decisions if the cases are approved for court and that those can range from 27 different options that a judge has available to them. But our court counselors make a recommendation to the judge about what should happen to that kid next. We also oversee the programming, the community-based programming. So our goal in the juvenile justice system is really to try to keep fewer kids confined in secure custody settings because the research has shown that kids actually do better if you put them in community-based placements. And so we actually fund about 600 different nonprofits across the state of North Carolina through what we call juvenile crime prevention councils. Um, These juvenile crime prevention councils last year served over 20,000 juveniles across the state of North Carolina. And we also have contractual programs that we put in place that are more for more intensive kids. And those um, are residential placements such as Eckerd and we have placements through Methodist Home for Children where kids will go and spend up to six months in a residential placement. All of those are part of the, the function of juvenile justice and I oversee each of those different components. We also have a treatment and clinical section um, that provides clinical services for kids that are in our residential placements. What age ranges are you dealing with and what kind of crimes have these juveniles committed? A juvenile in the state of North Carolina is defined now as a a juvenile under the age of 18. Um, And so typically we work with uh, juveniles between 10 and 18. A couple of years ago there was legislation passed that raised the floor Um, It used to be that we could work with juveniles as young as six, and um, that was the youngest age in the country. Um, The the General Assembly almost unanimously chose to change that to 10. Um, Now, for 
some very severe crimes, we can actually still work with eight and nine-year-olds. Um, but for the most part, the average age of a kid in the system is about 15, um, 15 and a half. And so we work with all of those different juveniles throughout the system. As far as the crimes, uh, the vast majority of juvenile crimes that are committed are for very small misdemeanors. Um, our most typical offense that comes into the system is simple assault, um, a small fight at school, for example. Um, but we do see a trend recently where we're seeing some more of that violent and serious crime uh, crimes taking um, place across the state of North Carolina. So last year, it was about 7% of the crimes that were committed were what we would consider A through E felonies, which are the violent offenses that um, juveniles commit. You just highlighted this, and we'd heard a rumor that even with juveniles, the crime since COVID has gone up significantly. How has the department dealt with that? So just in the last year, especially, we've seen a huge uptick in, in juvenile crime. Um, so last year, we saw a 24% increase in juvenile crime in, in, across the state of North Carolina, 21% increase in violent crimes committed by, by juveniles. And this really is a, a phenomenon that's come out of, of COVID. Um, we see a lot of young people that have been underserved and did not receive the appropriate services during COVID. So for about two years there where kids were getting referred to the mental health system or to the social services system, now they're coming into the juvenile justice system. And we're looking at changing some of our services in the juvenile justice system to be more appropriate for the older population that we're starting to see and for those kids that are much more mental health involved. Um, so last year in our, our youth development centers, which are the long-term committed facilities for juveniles, Every single one of those kids that came into the system had a mental health diagnosis. Every single one of them. Wow. Over 50% of them had five or more mental health diagnoses. Um, and that really just speaks to the, the nature of what we're seeing with these young people is that they've, they've gone for several years not getting those mental health services, and now they've become so intensive um, that often they're committing crimes that are causing them to enter the juvenile justice system. So we're trying to address that through having better mental health services for those kids. We're trying to look at um, being more preventative on the front end, making sure that we have services available for our, our schools and our communities across the state of North Carolina to make sure that we can prevent those kids from entering the system to begin with. Can you walk us through your career within the department? Yeah, so I actually started my career with the Center for the Prevention of School Violence. And um, I started that career because I had a friend when I was in high school that was shot at school. Hmm. Um, and when that incident occurred, um, Governor Hunt was in, in office at the time and created a task force to look at school safety, and that was in 1993. And we looked at different options and solutions that would create a safer school environment for young people across the state. Um, my career developed from there. Um, when I graduated from college, I went into the Center for the Prevention of School Violence and started working there as a school safety specialist and then actually as the director of that Center for um, the Prevention of School Violence. And we'd started to do a lot of work with uh, school resource officers, which are the police officers that work in our schools and our juvenile court counselors and really trying to figure out how do we work with uh, young people to make sure that we can prevent them from entering the juvenile justice system in the future. My, my first impression was that we probably need to be tougher on kids. Then I actually started to meet a lot of the young people in our juvenile justice system and saw that those those young people didn't seem all that different than me. Mm -hmm. um, they just did not have the same advantages that I had in life. They didn't have two good parents at home. They didn't have people teaching them the basic skills of how to be successful in life. And so one of the things that we really wanted to look at was how could we have school resource officers work with our court counselors to try to prevent those kids from entering the system, but also still get them services that they needed. So 
I went from working with the Center for the Prevention of the School Violence to coming over to the juvenile justice system and working on enhancing the comprehensive strategy that we put in place for community-based services for kids. I had read about your friend in high school in an article profiling you, Billy. Mm -hmm. And in that article, it went back to your childhood, your early years in school. You didn't have all the advantages that a lot of kids had. You were a victim of bullying. Can you talk a little bit about that, Billy? Yeah, so I'm albino, which means that I have really pale skin, really white hair, and uh, pink eyes, and not the best vision in the world. And as you might imagine, being in that category as a a young person, um, bullies try to find kids that are different. (laughs) And they choose kids that are different to bully because they know that there's probably not anybody else in the school that's going to look like them or act like them. So they try to choose that kid that's going to be an easy target. Being albino, I was that easy target. They were pretty sure the next day I wasn't going to show up with my posse of albinos and go get them because there weren't weren't a posse. Uh (laughs) And so I also like to talk, as you can tell from the podcast here. Um, And so... um, I usually were, was able to get out of those incidents with uh, a quick comeback or a way to kind of diffuse the situation when I was in elementary school. When I got to middle school, uh, kids are in middle school are a little bit tougher, a little bit rougher. Um, and there was an incident that kind of really culminated it for me in sixth grade. I had a substitute teacher for English class on sixth period um, one day. And um, the English teacher that came in, the substitute teacher, was having a really tough day. If anybody that's been a substitute teacher in middle school knows it's not an easy environment. It's a hard job. The teacher came in as this, uh, at, by the time six period rolled around and decided, I need to do something a little bit different to get class started so that maybe I can get this thing under control a little bit better than I've had for the rest of the day. So they told a joke. And unfortunately, that joke was about me being albino. That stunned the class actually um, everybody was quiet for a second and then a few kids started to laugh and then this young man that was sitting over two rows beside me decided today was the day um he had been trying to get me for years and this was going to be the day that he actually you know broke me down and so uh he jumped right in after that substitute teacher um told a, a, a joke about me being albino also the kids in the class started to laugh and they noticed that the teacher didn't do anything so other young people started to join in. After a, a couple of minutes of this, you know, uh, the teacher actually went and sat down behind their desk um, and did not get involved at all for, you know, four or five minutes. So I sat there for four or five minutes, all these young people in the classroom picking on me about being uh, albino. And finally, about five minutes in, that teacher finally got back up and, and walked to the front of the class and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've gone a little too far here. In my head, I was thinking a little too far. That was a you know, five minutes ago, where were you then? Um, And uh, this young man that was sitting two two rows over stood back up and pointed his finger at that teacher and said, you started this, I'm going to finish it. Wow. And it started right back up. Teacher went and sat right back down. For about 10 minutes, I sat there listening to it and and being put down by all these young people. I thought to myself, after about 10 minutes, you, you started to feel that burning sensation behind your eyes. And the worst thing you can do as a seventh grade boy is to let them see you cry. Yeah. And I decided I got to get up and get out of here. And so I tried to gather up my stuff and get out of there as quickly as I could. I thought I would make it out of that door before that first tear started to leave my eyes, but I didn't quite make it out of oh. that door in time. Um, and I heard this roar of laughter as I slammed the door behind me and I thought to myself, what just happened? Yeah. Cause I was a kid that loved school. Both my parents were in education. Yeah. I loved school. 
And I thought to myself, what should I do next? Uh, should I go talk to the principal? Should I go talk to a counselor? And in my head, I thought, nobody in that classroom cared about me. What makes me think a principal is going to care? A counselor is going to care? Anybody else at the school is going to care about me? So instead, I ran home, which was about six miles away. Um, I got home. I was sweating. I was mad. I was angry. Um, and I was pretty down on myself. Fortunately, my mom happened to be pulling in the driveway about the same time. Um, and I remember she said, what, what happened, Billy? What, what, what happened? Why are you so upset? And her first natural reaction as a mom and as an educator was, somebody at that school is getting fired today. <laughs> I, I don't know who it is, but one of them's getting fired. And we walked in the house and she pulled out the phone book and she was trying to look up the phone number of, of that school. And I think she was so angry that she forgot the alphabet. But eventually, she, I don't know, her whole face changed, her whole expression changed. And she said, Billy, tell me everything that happened. Because I think she decided something's more important than that school or that teacher or those other kids at that school. And it's my baby sitting right in front of me. I need to talk to him about what had happened. And so that conversation went on for a couple hours. And finally, she looked up at me and she said, Billy, can you stop for a second? I got something important to tell you. And she said, Billy, you are albino. What does that mean? And I told her, well, it means I have really white hair. I have really white skin. I have bad vision. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It means all that stuff. But what else does it mean? And she said, it means you're special. Hmm. And she said that God made you this way for a purpose. I don't know what that purpose is yet, but God made you this way for a purpose. You know, I had never thought of it that way. I'd always thought if you could go to the de-albonification factory, you would go. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she was actually telling me this was actually something really great about me. And she said, people are going to remember you because you are different. And that's very true. I've found Mm -hmm. that in my whole life now. People from my kindergarten class come up to me all the time that say, hey, you're in my kindergarten class. I remember you. I have no clue who they are. (laughs) But they remember that white hair, right? It it has actually served me very well in in my life and in the things that I do because People do remember me, and, and, and um, that helps me to stand out. But it also helps me understand the young people that are in our system. Yeah. Um, a lot of our young people, when you look at the, the kids that are in the juvenile justice system, they've been bullied themselves. They've been abused themselves. They've been, um, they, they don't have that home life. They don't have that mom to come home to that's going to say, you are special, and you don't deserve this to happen to you. Um, and so I, I know I was fortunate to have that. Um, but I also see it in the young people that we have that our job in the juvenile justice system is to give them that same chance to, for us to tell them that they are special and we think that they can be successful in life. All right, Billy, so I'm, I'm a little fired up again rehearing the story. Was there any accountability for this substitute teacher and the students in the classroom? Absolutely. The next okay. day, uh, my, we didn't make it that night because of the conversation with my mom lasted so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but that next day, we went into the school and there was accountability for, for all involved. But the bullying didn't stop there. I mean, I'm sure it went through high school. I mean, even today, you must get some sort of stares or comments. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So I, I've learned um, that when people do stare now, I go up and tell them what it is. Okay. <laughs> that I'm albino. I explain Pretty. it to them um, because I think that when they understand why you are different, it, it, it helps a whole lot. Um, but that speech that my mom gave me, I'm sure she had given it to me a 300, 400 times before, mm-hmm. but I wasn't ready to listen until that day. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell the, young, the, the staff that work with our young people is that they may not listen to you today, they might not listen to you tomorrow, but you don't know when that intervention is going to work, 
and we have to be persistent and consistent with them to help them understand that there are people that care about them in, in, in our society. I find it so admirable and perplexing that you could take that moment and turn it into something positive and thankful for your mother for doing that. But, you know, a lot of the kids in the system are the bullies, the kids that would bully you and bully others like you or others just in general. Right. That had to be a hard thing to be able to take that anger and to find something else. It's definitely a process. I mean, and I think it is a process for all of us involved to understand that these are young people. Um, and a lot of them weren't taught the things that you and I were taught. Yeah. Um, and to help understand and, and really dive into that, what really drives me is to say that it's, it's, this can't be the defining characteristic of your life. You made one mistake as a juvenile. Lots of us made mistakes as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make sure to give them an opportunity to be successful. As you talk, the word that comes to my mind is empathy. Even when you were talking about the substitute teacher, you said she had a bad day. You very clearly use that in the way you run the department. Can you kind of talk about how you approach, let's say a juvenile comes in, How? what is your systematic approach for that? The big difference between the juvenile justice system and, let's say, the adult system is that we take an individual look at each child. Mm -hmm. Each child has different needs, has different risks, and has different strengths. Um, So one of the things that we've recently done is we've put in place a new tool. It's called YAZI, which is the Youth Assessment Screening Inventory. And that looks at all three of those characteristics. It looks at the, the risk factors that drove them to the system. It looks at the needs that they have, whether it's family life, whether it's they need more community involvement, whether it's they need some spiritual guidance. It looks at all those things. And then it looks at their strengths also, because one of the things that we've not looked at for years is there, there are great things about these kids. And a lot of times they don't even know what those things are. Um, and so for them to help understand that, hey, there are good things about you, um, building that into the tool and into the assessment that helps drive the case forward is so important. We need to know, are you interested in some type of vocational skill? Are you interested in being an auto mechanic? Are you interested in going into the army? Are you interested in being a chef? Are you interested in going into politics? What is it that drives you that's going to make you want to be successful? And we've got to start asking those questions of these young people so that we can truly figure out what's going to motivate them to change their behaviors. And so that's, I think, the big difference that we've we've been driving over the last couple of years is really trying to figure out how do we how do we look at this individual child and what's going to make them be successful. And have you seen better outcomes with that? Yeah. So uh, when I first started in juvenile justice, there were almost fourteen hundred kids locked up in youth development centers in the state of North Carolina. Um, That was before we even raised the age. So that was only kids under the age of sixteen. Fourteen hundred kids. Right now, we got only about 160 kids locked up in youth development centers. At the same time, we've seen juvenile crime over the last decade and a half decrease in the state of North Carolina. This recent uptick, I think, has been only generated because of COVID and because of us actually raising the the juvenile age, which was the right policy. It was a unanimous policy that passed the General Assembly. Um, but it has obviously increased the population that are eligible to be in the juvenile justice system. So some of the uptake is, is simply that. It's simply there's more kids that are eligible now to, to enter the system. But there's also a generation from the, the COVID situation that happened that's causing some of this uptake. But what we have seen is that um, recidivism has gotten a lot better. When I first started in juvenile justice, when a kid left the YDC, there, uh, which is a youth development center, their chances of coming back to me um, within a year was 80%. 
Now we've driven that down to 36%. Wow. Um, now there, there's still work to be done. 36% still work that, that we can put in to, to make sure that the, those kids don't come back to the system. But to go from 80% down to 36% is because we've taken a much more therapeutic approach. We've taken an approach that's really looking at what are the individual factors that are driving these kids to the system. And we're also making sure that we're involving more community-based programming to make sure these kids can be successful. You also have jurisdiction somewhat over the family as well when they're in the juvenile system. That's correct. So um, one of the big differences in in the juvenile justice system versus the adult system is that the whole family really is under supervision with us um, when a kid's in the juvenile justice system. So if a parent's not taking a kid to services, if a parent's not being involved in the mental health services that that kid needs to have, um, then we can actually bring that back to the judge and ask the judge to order those things that the parent has to do those things moving forward. But also it's because we know that there's systemic issues that often drive kids to the system. And so if we're not addressing the issues that are in the family, then we're not addressing the issues that are driving the kids to the system to begin with. It does cost more to give a kid therapeutic services than it is to just throw them in prison and let them rot, right? Right. And so the, the question is, what are we as a society going to choose to do? Um, so a, a kid that's 16 or 17 years old, if we don't change them when they're 16 or 17 years old, that's another 60, 70, 80 years of that child being a criminal in our society if we can't change the behavior at a very young age. And so I think the investment on the front end is extremely important and necessary. There's been a, a huge sea change in just how we treat kids in the system. Um, when I first started, we were still serving kids at Samarkand, which was built back in the 1920s. We were still serving kids at what was then called Stonewall Jackson Youth Development Center, um, which was built in 1919. Yeah. Um, and those facilities were falling apart. They were decrepit. And the types of services that we were able to provide in those, those facilities were purely punitive in nature. Yeah. And so that change from punitive to therapeutic has really created these reduced recidivism rates that we see in the system now. So as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the holistic, whole person approach that you're taking to addressing these juveniles. Is it difficult, as you're saying, with these kids that are coming into the system with five mental health disorders to get them the services that they need? Absolutely. That is a huge problem that we're seeing. So if if you look at the kids that are in, in my juvenile detention center, so juvenile detention is the Uh, service that kids go to while they're awaiting trial. Um, Often judges will keep them in juvenile detention because they're either a harm to themselves or they could be a harm to the public. Um, So about 30% of the kids that are in my juvenile detention centers today are simply waiting on a placement. They're waiting on a mental health placement. They're waiting on a DSS placement. They often wait in a juvenile detention center for almost a month Mm. waiting on those placements to generate Um, And the problem is that we just don't have enough of them in the state of North Carolina. There are not enough residential options for kids. A lot of the uh, mental health providers that we go to are actually out of state. Um, So, for example, today I've got over 100 kids just in South Carolina, um, and those are – they're in there for a a PRTF, which is a psychological residential treatment facility. Um, And so we still have to supervise those kids. So I'm sending court counselors down there. Their families are separated from them. We need to do a better job in the state of North Carolina providing services at home so that kids can get those services 
and their families can be involved in the in the treatment process because often that systemic issue that's going on in the family is what's driving this kid to be in either the mental health, the DSS system, or juvenile justice system moving forward. You also have staffing issues. You're competing with the private sector. You need folks in your department with specialized services around mental health. Can you talk a little bit about your priorities and what you're trying to do? Our top priority has got to be um, higher wages for our staff. So in our facilities, the average staff member starts at $35,500. That equates out to about $17 an hour, um, which if you compare it against Target or Walmart, um, that's who we're competing against. And the people that we need in our facilities have to have immense amounts of patience. They have to have a passion for wanting to change kids' lives, and they also need to have a college degree. Um, And so we're asking these these people to come and work with our young people that are often the most at risk in in the state. I often say that the kids that come to juvenile justice, the education systems failed them, the mental health systems often failed them, DSSs often failed them, and now they're coming to juvenile justice as that last resort. And we've got to have trained, very passionate people that are, are ready to work with these young people. Right now in my facilities, I have a 50% vacancy rate among wow. direct care staff. That on top of the fact that we have a, um, we're over capacity in, in juvenile detention centers because of that uptick in, in juvenile crime I was just talking about. So this morning I had 27 more kids than I had beds for. Um, so that means that they're sleeping on day room floors um, in, in our juvenile detention facilities right now. It is a very dangerous situation, unfortunately, right now because of that. And we're trying to pull out all the stops. Uh, we, we're offering bonuses. We're offering sign-on bonuses for people, retention bonuses to try to get them in the door and keep them in the door once we get them there. Because of that short staffing, it, it almost becomes a, a cyclical thing. They, they see that, hey, this facility is so short staffed. This this doesn't feel safe to me. Mm-hmm. And so then they leave almost immediately because they don't feel like there's enough staffing there to keep them safe. One of the things that we are doing over the General Assembly right now is talking about that with our, our members and saying that we've, we've got to become more competitive. And the other thing is that we, we rely a lot on our contractual um, programs and our JCPC programs. Um, and so all of those programs have seen increased costs for their staffing, but also just material costs and gas costs and those types of things. And so we're asking for a, a CPI increase for our residential providers um, that are is extremely important. They, they've got to be able to keep up in, with inflation if they're going to keep staff. And those, those staff members that work in those community-based programs help us prevent from kids having to go deeper into the system. What would you say is your favorite part about this work? My favorite part is seeing a young person get their life changed. Mm-hmm. Um, just two weeks ago, I got to go to a graduation at our youth development center. Now, these are kids that when they came into the facility often were three to four behind years behind on their education, um, needed a lot of credit recovery. Um, but we actually, at, down at uh, Cabarrus Youth Development Center um, last week, we graduated eight kids mm-hmm. um, from high school, high school diplomas. That is something that nobody will ever be able to take away from those young people. And several of those kids we've already enrolled in community college um, and, and gotten them started down the path of getting a technical degree so that when they get out, they'll be able to go directly into a job and be successful. That's, that gives me a, so much hope and, and, and is what drives me each and every day. Um, I'm also driven by our staff. These people are the salt of the earth type of people. I mean, they really are doing this job because they want to save a kid's life. If there was one thing that you could change, if you had a magic wand and you could change something either in our politics or policy, what would it be? I think the biggest thing is that I would depoliticize kids. 
Mm-hmm. Um, kids, I, I hate to ever see them be used as a pawn um, mm-hmm. in the political process. As, as a parent myself, as a, a husband of a wife that works in an elementary school, uh, someone that's been working in juvenile justice my whole career, had a mom that was a teacher, I know exactly how important that it is that young people have a good foundation to start off on. We can debate about the issues in, in areas where it, it, we may be best served with kids, but we should always think through as, as a society, how do we want to invest in them um, and how do we make sure that we're not allowing our, our political bents to drive what we're, we're, we're saying needs to be taught in school or what the skills are that our kids need to have because ultimately um, our young people, they deserve our investment, they deserve our time and our and, and energy to make sure they can be successful. Well, Billy Lassiter, the Deputy Secretary for the Department of Public Safety, we appreciate everything you are doing for kids in this state, everything you are doing in state government. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I love this conversation so much with Billy. We have worked with him over the last few years in our work for Eckerd. They do a lot of juvenile justice work with the department and the General Assembly. And the story of that incident of being bullied just hurts me so much to to know that, you know, a kid would be targeted by an adult, not to mention his classmates, and that he took that and made it into his career to advocate for kids who are sometimes hard to love. They're hard to wrap your arms around and help, but he sees something else out of that pain of being bullied. You know, I also want to mention about Billy and partisanship. He is not partisan at all. Mm -hmm. He worked in Governor Pat McCrory's administration in the Department of Juvenile Justice, is so admired and respected that Governor Roy Cooper kept him in the department. It's just a testament to his passion for this work. Billy, we really appreciate you being on the podcast and sharing this story with listeners. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from hashtag NCGA rumors and they're at NCGA rumors. They don't follow anyone, so you don't know who it is. And they have 18 followers. The tweet says, not sure why everyone is all excited about the budget getting released next week. Once the House passes it, the Senate will just mess it all up. (laughs) Which takes us to this morning, Representative Jeffrey Elmore was sitting across from us and he is one of the budget writers. And he said, well, once we send it over to the Senate, they will just pull their budget off of a shelf and blow off the dust. (laughs) (laughs) Passing their own budget and setting up the conference report. 
you know, we had a nomination this week for Tweet of the Week. We didn't use it. felt a little self-serving on my part. This week, we were in the building, and the physician assistants were there. They had a lobby day. They were wearing the white coats, along with the OBGYNs. They were also there. By the way, let's just go ahead and say it. This week, this Wednesday, was a lot of groups lobby The day. advocacy day. Oh, my gosh. Talk about fast pass. We, that was it kind of so embarrassing. Long. I told you I was going between the buildings. I saw this like large group of people, and... I started running to get ahead of them, and uh, Officer Cook like was running out of the LOB, and he was like, "You don't have to run, Sky. You can make it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, we had a group in Audubon, North Carolina. They brought birds out, and we visited with legislators. It was a lot of fun. But I got to meet a listener's fiance. Actually, she's a listener too. And she stopped me in the hallway. She's like, hey, you're Brian Lewis with the Do Politics Better podcast. And she Wow, is, are I you know, famous? I know. Kyle, this doesn't sound self-serving at all. Uh, Kyle is a longtime listener. And apparently, Melissa, his fiance, he convinced her to, to listen to the podcast. And Oh, I thought you were going to say Miriam. <laughs> oh, well, he did that too. He proposed <laughs> at the Capitol building, the U.S. Capitol building. They are getting married in August and uh, got to meet Melissa. We had a photo taken together, and then she put it, or actually Kyle put it on Twitter. Kyle Bridges, by the way, he, he is the state deputy director for U.S. Senator Ted Budd. He worked for uh, Senator Bud back when he was in Congress. He also worked for Senator Richard Burr at some point, but anyway, enjoyed meeting Melissa. Thank you, and uh if you know, if you do see us in the building, we'd love to talk to you about what you like about the podcast and, and all of that. It was just a lot of fun. So last night, we had another Do Politics Better dinner, mm-hmm. which was a great time. And we had someone who told us they were an intern in 2018. And he was here as a staffer, well, executive staffer. And we were like, oh, were you here at the same time as our intern, Jacob? And this guy's like, oh, yeah, I remember Jacob Lowe. We definitely (laughs) interned together. Now, this guy, again, he is in the executive branch doing great. We really appreciate him participating in our dinner last night. But it brought up this funny story we had about Jacob when he interned with us in 2018. First of all, Jacob's connection to us is through me, which led to some tense moments between Jacob and I because he didn't listen to me mostly. Because <laughs> you knew him even when he was like going back to middle school, right? Yeah, I nannied for his family when I was in college and always been very close with his family. I, I, I speak about them often. So they sent him out here from Illinois Yep. to be our intern. He lived here for a summer, had a, an apartment, and drove his BMW <laughs> to the General Assembly. By the way, this intern wore boss suits. Entertaining kid. Wildly entertaining, not super efficient in his work. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But we had convinced. Okay, so I took a call. Okay. And so I had walked away from the group. And when I came back, (laughs) Jacob was in a full sweat. Yeah. And typing furiously. So I knew he wasn't doing real work, that's for sure. And (laughs) so (laughs) he told me. 
about the intern rap battle that you had entered him into. I convinced Jacob that at the General Assembly, the summer tradition was for all of the interns to make a rap song about a piece of legislation that was moving either in the House or the Senate. Or it wasn't even moved, just had to be an introduced bill. And that the committee chairs of the House and the Senate would convene once a summer, and the interns would come in and they would perform their rap song about the bill. Now, if you won this contest between all of the interns in the General Assembly, and that includes inside state government interns, it also includes lobbyist interns, then that bill would be guaranteed a hearing in a committee. And so Jacob decided that he would write a rap about the shackling bill. Prisoners were shackled when they were giving birth, if they were pregnant inside prison. And it was a big issue that summer, and he wrote a rap about it. And the funny thing is, is that not only did he write this rap, we had him perform this rap. Over and over. And the one thing we've always said about the General Assembly is that We're a dysfunctional family, (laughs) but everybody stepped up to the plate. He would say to the janitors, do you know about the intern rap battle? And they'd be like, yeah, hope yours is good. Like everybody played along with it. My favorite moment in this, former Representative Chris Malone. Representative Malone chaired the HHS, Health and Human Services Subcommittee, and he tells Jacob that he wants to hear the rap. And Jacob performed the rap for Representative Malone. He did say to me, I think I'm going to have to have a drink before I do this. (laughs) (laughs) It finally came out. We were talking to actually a liaison over at DQ. Andy Miller. Andy finally had had enough. Well, first he was like, Jacob, do you think this is happening? (laughs) It's been weeks. (laughs) You haven't heard anybody else rapping. And do you think this is happening? He's like, well, uh," and he's like, and who, what legislators would you be doing this in front of? (laughs) And do you think they would be favorable to listening to what you are now (laughs) saying? And Jacob was like, it depends what kind of legislator. (laughs) Yeah. We should have have, have a rap battle. Well, see, this plays into you talking about the press skits a lot. Mm -hmm. You love talking about that. If we had like one big event a year, you know, sort of like my lip sync, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) just one event where we all got together and did something funny, that would be a good idea, I think. Well, let's put it out there. If you have summer interns this year, or if you have interns right now, and you want to offer up your intern to write a rap about a bill at the General Assembly. I think we can actually get some legislators to come over to the office or we could do it somewhere else where we vote on them. Yeah, we'll vote on them. Put the interns on stage. They have to perform. We will vote it up. We'll have us a champion. We'll give them a trophy. We'll call it the Jacob Lowe Internship Rap Invitational. Wow. Yeah. All right. Let us know if you're interested. Yeah. So we will talk to you next Friday. But between now and then, go outside. Enjoy the new spring weather. Finally warming up out there. I hope that y'all take a break 
this weekend. Enjoy your families and friends. And remember to do politics better.